Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode depicts violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. Two men break into a home in Holcomb, Kansas, convinced they're going to score big with the contents of a safe in a home office. By the time they leave the house that night, they have somewhere between $40 and $50 in cash, a pair of binoculars, and a transistor radio. They leave behind four members of the Clutter family dead in their home. This is Method and Madness, Episode 27, The Clutter Family Murders, Part 1. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and Madness Herb Clutter thought the two unknown armed intruders were just there for money. He believed they were only there to get some money. That's what he told his wife when he woke her in the middle of the night. Two strange men behind him in the bedroom on Oak Avenue. It's all right, sweetheart, Herb told his wife of 25 years, Bonnie. Don't be afraid. If there had been a safe or if Herb had more money in his home, He would have handed it over that night. He would have appeased the two men who were demanding more, more cash, more valuables. They were calling him a liar for not showing them where the cash was hidden. But Herb felt helpless. There was no other cash, nothing more than the $42 he had already given the two men. He didn't ever use cash in his business dealings. And he didn't know why the two men kept asking about the safe, a safe that he didn't own. If Herb Clutter had known the real danger that he and his family were in that night, if he could see an hour into the future, he would have fought. He would have done anything to protect them. He would have done anything to ensure the safety of his wife, Bonnie, and his two children, Nancy and Kenyon. But Herb Clutter truly believed in his heart this was just a robbery. Let's dive in. It was November 1959 on the Clutter Farm in Holcomb, Kansas, in Finney County. The house was a 14-room, blonde brick home designed by Herb Clutter himself, built in 1948, for $40,000. It had 2.5 bathrooms and a large basement. It was located at the end of a long, private road lined by Chinese elm trees and surrounded by what seemed to be an infinite prairie of wheat fields. Holcomb, a town of about one and a quarter miles with train tracks of the Santa Fe Railroad running through it, a town with a semi-arid climate, was peaceful, a safe community of about 260 people, farmers, ranchers, People who knew each other said hi on the sidewalk as they crossed paths, went to church on Sunday mornings, sent their children to the one school in town, 
ate lunch at Hartman's Cafe, and enjoyed the quiet in the southwest Kansas community. 48-year-old Herb Clutter, a strict but loving father of four, lived at the home on Oak Avenue with his wife, 45-year-old Bonnie, their daughter, 16-year-old Nancy, and their son, 15-year-old Kenyon. Their two older daughters, 23-year-old Ivana, who was married with a baby, and 20-year-old Beverly, a nursing student who was engaged and soon to be married, had moved out and lived on their own. Herb, a graduate of Kansas State University where his major was agriculture, was an early riser, tending to the farm starting at 6.30 a.m., his crops, the cattle, the horse, assisted by two farmhands. But that Saturday morning, November 14th, would be the last time that Herb would see the sunrise. His wife, Bonnie, described in many articles and books as a nervous type and even a, quote, invalid, suffered from anxiety and depression that was reportedly a result of childbirth. But she was much more to those that knew her. She was loving, affectionate, and had studied to be a nurse. Before she was suffering with mental illness, Bonnie enjoyed picnicking with her family and vacationing in Colorado. And her husband, Herb, adored her. They had met when Herb attended college with Bonnie's older brother, Glenn. Nancy, a popular and friendly teenager, had gone out with friends the night before, Friday the 13th, celebrating a successful performance of Tom Sawyer at the school where she played Becky Thatcher. Nancy wore the ring of 17-year-old Bobby Rupp, a boy that Herb liked, but overall, he felt hesitant and concerned about his 16-year-old daughter being in a committed relationship. Kenyon, the youngest of the cluttered children and tallest at six feet, was known as sort of a quiet, intelligent loner who read a lot and was always in his head thinking. He had taken in the family dog a few years ago, a stray that he named Teddy, who liked to frolic in the fields near the cattle. Kenyon was a skilled carpenter and during that weekend in November was planning on finishing the work on a mahogany hope chest he'd made for his sister Beverly, a gift for her upcoming nuptials. The family was well-liked. They were church-going and they were close-knit. That Saturday afternoon, Bobby Rupp called Nancy and asked her out to a movie that night. It was a full moon. Maybe they could go for a romantic drive as well, but Herb had put his foot down. Bobby was already on thin ice, getting Nancy home at 2 a.m. the night prior. But Bobby was welcome to come over that night, which he did, around 7 p.m. after the family had finished dinner. He sat in the living room with Nancy, Kenyon, and Herb watching TV while Bonnie was in bed. Nothing unusual occurred while Bobby visited that night, and he left around 10.30, making plans with Nancy to see a movie the following night. Nancy and Kenyon turned in on the second floor of the farmhouse in their respective bedrooms, with Bonnie sleeping upstairs as well, in what was formerly Ivana's room. While Herb settled in to sleep on the first floor in the master bedroom, off the side entrance to the house, he and his wife slept in separate bedrooms so he would not disturb her rest 
when he woke before dawn each day. Nancy was the last one to go to sleep after writing in the diary that she kept. Sometime after midnight, Herb woke up to the sounds of floorboards creaking and a light shining on him. He opened his eyes and called out for his wife, thinking Bonnie had come downstairs for something. He sat up and, without his glasses on, saw two blurry figures standing near his bed. That's when Herb realized it wasn't Bonnie that had woken him up. There were two men in his room. He could barely make out their faces, but heard their voices loud and clear demanding money, demanding to know where the safe was hidden. Herb, struggling to see clearly, looked at the two men, confused. Who were they and what were they talking about? Why were they in his house? He had never seen them before, didn't recognize their voices. They were young, maybe late 20s or early 30s. One man, the taller one with the light hair, was doing most of the talking and was armed with a knife. The other, a shorter man with dark hair, wasn't saying much, but he was armed with a shotgun. The taller man asked Herb to join them in the office, and Herb got out of bed, and the three walked into the office and turned on the light. Herb was confused when they asked him where the safe was in the office. He didn't own a safe, didn't know where anyone would have gotten that idea. He answered truthfully that he didn't own a safe, which only angered the taller man, who started yelling and calling him a liar. But Herb kept his cool. He was never one to raise his voice anyway, and he insisted he was telling the truth. Herb watched as one of the men fussed with some items on his desk and then tampered with the phone wire. Are there any other phones in the house? Yes, one in the kitchen, Herb responded truthfully. One of the men walked off, and Herb assumed he was tampering with that phone too, cutting the wires to make it useless. There would be no calling for help. But it didn't matter anyway. They had a gun. Herb wouldn't dare make a wrong move. And the taller man was gripping that knife. They weren't going to use the weapons on him or his family as long as he complied. He fully intended on doing what they asked, and hopefully they'd leave soon. The man with the knife ordered Herb back into the master bedroom to get his wallet. Herb showed him his billfold, and the intruder counted the contents. Only about $30, which made the man even angrier, as he demanded to know where the rest of the cash was, accused Herb of lying, that a rich man like him must have a ton of cash lying around. Left with no other choice, Herb offered up this, I can write you a check, to which the man scoffed and only got louder, more annoyed at the suggestion. Suddenly, the man with the gun spoke up, told his partner that someone was moving around upstairs. Herb didn't want the men going up there. He had to try and keep them downstairs. They wouldn't want to go up there once they learned that it was just his wife and children sleeping, nobody that posed a threat to them. The taller man wanted to know if Herb's wife had cash, to which he responded, maybe, but only very little. But Herb pleaded for the men not to go up the stairs, not to wake his wife, for she wasn't feeling well, and this would certainly provide her much stress. The men ignored Herb's pleas and led him to the staircase. Herb walked up the stairs, 
the intruders following close behind, and he tried one more time, a futile attempt to get them to stay downstairs. I don't know why you want to do this. I've never done you any harm. But he was silenced, the taller man telling him to shut up. As they reached the top of the stairs, Herb turned on the hall light and pointed out Nancy's and Kenyon's bedrooms. Both of their doors were closed, and he told the men that they were sleeping. He figured this would keep the men out of their rooms. After all, they were just children. No need to bring them into any of this. Herb opened the door to where Bonnie was sleeping, a lump in his throat. This was going to trouble her, and for what? He knew she had but a few dollars on her, and it wasn't worth getting her upset. She'd been making progress, going out Friday night to Nancy's play, even putting on makeup and chatting with friends. This was going to set things back, but there wasn't anything he could think to do. The gun pointed at him as he walked into the bedroom and turned on a lamp. Herb spoke softly, assuring Bonnie that it was okay. These two men just want some money. Bonnie woke up and tears formed in her eyes as she responded that she didn't have any money. Herb told her the men thought there was a safe, which made the taller man angry again as he yelled for Herb to shut up. Tears were now rolling down Bonnie's cheeks, and she worried for her children that were down the hall. She insisted that there was no safe and informed the two intruders where she kept her purse in a dresser drawer. There were a couple bucks in there, some loose change, and the man with the knife pocketed it. Just then, the man with the gun motioned to his partner to join him out in the hall. Herb held on to Bonnie's hand as they were left alone in the room for a few moments while they heard the two men whispering in the hallway, planning their next move. Herb squeezed his wife's hand and continued to reassure her that it would be okay. They had all the cash that was available. Herb waited for them to walk down the stairs and leave. But the two men came back into the bedroom and ordered Herb and Bonnie out into the hall and into the bathroom. The men had dragged a hall chair in for Bonnie to sit on, and she pleaded for the strangers to leave her children alone, not to harm them. Bonnie and Herb were left in the bathroom, the door shut. All Bonnie could do was listen helplessly to the footsteps headed towards her children's rooms. Herb tried to comfort her, told her nothing was going to happen, they just wanted money. But Bonnie wasn't so sure. What kind of money were they expecting to get from her teenage children? Why weren't they just leaving? Kenyon lay in his bed awake and frightened. He had heard the commotion, heard a loud, unfamiliar voice yelling at his dad to shut up. Heard his mom crying. Listened to furniture moving and drawers opening. He froze, not wanting to make a sound, and hoped that whoever was in the house would be leaving soon. Maybe they wouldn't know he was there. Maybe if he just lies still enough. But then his bedroom door opened, and the light from the hallway crept in, revealing two figures in his doorway. One man was short, maybe about 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. The other man, taller, close to his own height. That one yelled at him to get up. Kenyon was still frozen in fear when the man punched him, yelling again and dragging him out of the bed. He was stunned for a moment as he heard the shorter man scolding his partner. 
One of them told Kenyon to put on pants as he'd been sleeping in a t-shirt. Kenyon did as he was told, putting on a pair of jeans, and then he too was put into the bathroom to join his parents as the two men shut the door. What is this, some kind of a joke? A soft voice called out as Nancy crept into the hall to see what was happening. She was nervously looking at the two men in the hallway and trying to put together what was taking place. This wasn't a joke. They pushed her into the bathroom and she joined her brother and her parents. Her mom was crying and dad was remaining calm. It calmed her a little bit too, but the not knowing what would happen next was scaring Nancy. What do they want and who are they, she asked. The Clutters could hear the conversations going on outside the bathroom. The man with the knife was standing guard so that none of them could escape their temporary prison. They could hear the other man walking around the bedrooms, then footsteps on the stairs going down. Were they leaving? No. The taller man, the louder, angrier one, was still outside the bathroom. Moments later, the footsteps came back up the stairs and the clutters braced themselves for what would be coming next. Herb was taken from the bathroom and his family watched as the men tied his hands together and the man with the gun walked Herb down the stairs. A few minutes passed and the gunman was back. This time he tied Kenyon's hands up and led him down the stairs too. He was back a few minutes later to tie up Bonnie and he led her back into her bedroom where she begged him not to hurt her children. In an attempt to reach any humanity that this man may have, she confided in him that the other man, the taller one, was worrying her. He seemed so angry and she didn't like the way he'd looked at Nancy. She was afraid he was going to hurt her children. Nancy was terrified, alone with this strange man. She wanted him off her bed and out of the house. She wanted to run and hug her parents, her brother. She wanted the nightmare to be over, but there was a man with a knife in her room, in her safe space. She thought about that evening leading up to this, about watching TV with Bobby. She wanted to be back there, feeling safe watching the weather report, making a date with Bobby for the next night. She asked the man why he was doing this, and he answered that he'd never been loved, had spent his childhood in an orphanage. Nancy thought, if I'm nice to him, maybe he won't hurt me. Maybe he won't want to. But just then, the other man entered her room and told his partner to go look for the safe. Nancy felt a little relief. Okay, maybe it would be all right. Maybe nobody was going to hurt her. The gunman tied Nancy's hands behind her back and tied her feet together. Okay, so they just want to make sure we don't get out, that we don't escape. But that gun... That gun was all she could think about. Nancy silently prayed. She was surprised and oddly comforted when the man pulled the blankets up and sort of tucked her in. He sat down in the chair next to her bed and struck up a conversation. It calmed her nerves just a little bit. Surely he wouldn't have tucked her in, started a conversation if he was planning on harming her. Nancy thought that if she could just stay calm be likable. Maybe they wouldn't want to hurt her. Nancy watched 
as the man looked around her pink, blue, and white room, eyeing her photos of Bobby, her beloved horse, babe, her cats, photos of her new baby nephew. She politely answered his questions. He had asked her about her interests, her school, her boyfriend. Soon the other man returned to her room, and both intruders left Nancy alone, tied up while they walked down the hall. They entered Bonnie's bedroom, where they took long strips of tape and wrapped them around her head. The men told Bonnie to stop crying and to go to sleep. She listened helplessly as they walked away and down the stairs. Two floors down, in the basement, lie Herb Clutter in the pitch black, on a mattress that had been leaning against a wall. When the gunman brought him down earlier, he tied his feet together and then he laid the mattress on the floor and had Herb lie on it, arms and feet tied. It further confirmed to Herb that maybe they didn't intend on harming him if they were concerned with making him comfortable. Now Herb listened as the footsteps descended the stairs to the basement and he saw the glow of the flashlight coming toward him. Is my wife all right? Herb asked desperately. The gunman reassured him that everything was fine and that it would be morning soon. Herb lay there as one of the men taped his mouth and face. And then next was Kenyon, who was on the other side of the basement, in the playroom, tied to a couch in the dark. The rope looped around his throat in case he made any movements. One of the men approached with a flashlight and taped him too. It was a few moments where Herb didn't know what was coming next. It seemed like they were about to leave. The two intruders had tied him up. He could hear from the other side of the basement that Kenyon had been tied up too. He hoped, prayed that his wife hadn't been tied up. He could hear the two men talking in the corner of the basement, but he couldn't make out what they were saying. Herb used all of his strength to struggle out of the ties. He could feel the rope getting looser, but he didn't want to make too much of a fuss, didn't want the men to notice. He was almost loose, and as soon as they left, he was going to free Kenyon and run to Bonnie's side before going for help. Herb could feel the weight of the mattress go down. Someone was kneeling next to him. Had they noticed he was almost loose? It was so quick, he didn't have a chance to feel the steel on his neck as one of the men slashed Herb's throat with the knife. With his hands now free, Herb tried to fight back, but then the gunshot came and Herb was dead. Kenyon was screaming, but no sound was coming out the tape over his mouth as he tried to plead for his life. But the shot rang out, and he was dead instantly. Upstairs, Nancy's heart was pounding right along with the pounding of the footsteps coming up the stairs. She'd heard two bangs, two gunshots coming from the basement. The flashlight shone into her room, and she saw the gun pointed at her. She screamed no, turned her head away, and in an instant, she was dead. Down the hall, Bonnie sobbed. She knew what was coming, and so it did. She was the last and final victim shot in her bed. By 9 a.m. that morning, Sunday, the two farmhands were finishing up their chores on the clutter farm. Herb hadn't come out to greet them. He must have been sleeping in. The two boys started their walk home, 
Just as Nancy's friend, a classmate also named Nancy, Nancy Ewalt, pulled down the private drive in a car driven by her father, Clarence. Each Sunday, Clarence would drop his daughter off at the Clutter home so she could accompany the family to church. But that morning, nobody answered when Nancy Ewalt rang the bell at the front door. She knocked. Nothing. With Clarence watching from the car, waiting until she was safe inside, Nancy walked around to the side door that led into Mr. Clutter's office. The door was ajar, and she peeked in but didn't want to intrude. She knocked on that door, too, but got no response. As Nancy walked around the house to the back, she saw that the two Chevys were in the garage. After knocking on two more doors, Nancy returned to the car and, puzzled, told her dad nobody was answering. Maybe they were asleep? That didn't make sense to her or Clarence. That wasn't like Herb Clutter, sleeping in let alone on a Sunday being late for church. Nancy and Clarence left the farm to drive down to the apartment of Susan Kidwell, another friend of Nancy Clutter's. Maybe Susan and her mother Wilma would know where the family was, but Susan had no clue, neither did her mom. Susan phoned the Clutter home and let it ring. No answer. So it was decided that the Ewalts and the Kidwells would drive back to the Clutter house and go in to see if the family was asleep. Clarence's boots were muddy, so he stayed outside as his daughter, accompanied by Susan, entered the home through the kitchen. The door unlocked, as was usual. The Clutters never locked their doors. It was quiet inside, with no sign that anyone had been awake yet. No breakfast dishes. On the floor lie Nancy Clutter's purse, open. Susan and Nancy made their way to the staircase, calling upstairs for their friend. It was Susan that made her way upstairs first, with Nancy Ewalt behind her. Susan got to the top of the stairs and turned immediately right into Nancy Clutter's bedroom. Susan didn't even realize the noises that were coming out of her the screams as she saw her friend dead in her bed, blood all over the walls. Clarence Ewalt stood outside hearing the screams and watched as his daughter and Susan ran toward him. Nancy was yelling, she's dead. Clarence went inside to call for help, but there was no dial tone on the kitchen phone. The cord had been cut. They rushed back to the Kidwell's apartment, and Clarence called the Garden City Sheriff. Clarence and a neighbor of the Kidwell's, Larry Hendricks, left to go meet the sheriff who was on his way to respond to the Clutter Farm. Larry knew the family. He was one of Kenyon's teachers, and he had directed the play Tom Sawyer that Nancy was featured in just two days earlier. They met the sheriff a little after 9.30 that morning, and the three men entered the clutter home, not exactly sure what they were stepping into, but bracing themselves for what they were about to find. They observed each detail, every little thing that was out of place, the cut phone wires, the opened purse on the floor. And then came the discoveries. They started on the second floor, Nancy first, in her bed, killed by a gunshot. Larry positively identified her. Kenyon wasn't in his room, 
but they moved to the next bedroom and found Bonnie in her bed, killed by a gunshot. They walked back down the stairs and checked the master bedroom, but didn't find Kenyon or Herb. An undersheriff, Wendell, suddenly emerged from the basement. He had responded to the scene moments earlier when the three men were on the second floor. There's a body down here, he said. And that's where Kenyon was discovered, killed by a gunshot, followed finally by Herb, who very obviously suffered from more than just one gunshot, given the amount of blood present. The killers were long gone. Investigators searched the home, each room where each victim was left, trying to locate the empty bullet casings, but not one was found. Whoever did this was careful. No fingerprints other than the Clutter families. But the intruders weren't careful enough. While police officers trickled into the home, photos were taken of the various crime scenes, most notably a bloody footprint that was left near the body of Herb Clutter, a clue that would be crucial during the investigation. The news spread around the small town quickly. Few details were leaked at first, leading to just gossip and speculation about what had happened in the house. Friends and family were shocked and distraught upon hearing the news. After the crime scene was cleared by police, friends of Herb's pulled up to the farm that Monday, armed with buckets and mops to clean the home. The eerie, gruesome scene, the blood-stained walls, the bloody mattress and basement couch that would have to be burned, didn't offer the friends any answers but just more questions. A local newspaper, the Topeka Daily Capital's headline stated, Fear, Grief, Follow Murder Shock. The article read, quote, Grief and a submerged fear hit this wheat-rich community Monday as the shock of the shotgun massacre of the Herb Clutter family of nearby Holcomb began to wear off. Early Monday, numb disbelief showed in the face of Taylor Jones, a millionaire wheat farmer whose land adjoined the vast clutter fields. Herb never had an enemy I ever heard of, he said, and I never knew him even to lock his doors. The article also mentioned a local named Glenn Truitt, who had just went out and bought new locks for doors he had never locked in the past. The talk around town was rooted in fear. If a popular family like the Clutters could be attacked and murdered in their own home, then anyone could. Nancy's boyfriend, Bobby, wondered if the killer or killers were lurking, hiding behind a tree the night that he last saw the family. Were they waiting in the shadows when he left the home that night? Herb had just taken out an $80,000 life insurance policy. His surviving daughters would be the beneficiaries. Was that a morbid coincidence, or did it mean something more? Was there someone out there in the town or somewhere else with some kind of a grudge against the clutters? Soon, five agents from the Kansas Bureau of Investigation were brought in to look for the killer or killers. What they had to go on was, no weapons were located at the scene, no shell casings. It didn't appear that anything of value was missing, no obvious sign that the motive was a robbery. Robert Fenton, the coroner, 
stated that the time of death was between 11 p.m. Saturday and 2 a.m. Sunday, and that neither Bonnie nor Nancy appeared to be sexually assaulted. There was some evidence left behind, though. There was the bloody footprint in the basement and the cords used to bind the family. 1,000 people attended the funeral of Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon, held at the First Methodist Church in Garden City on Wednesday. The townsfolk felt shattered, unsure of their safety, in disbelief that their quiet little town right out of a country painting could hold such horrors, and someone or someones was still out there. It would be a long time before the town felt normal again. The investigation would run deep, and a visitor, an author, would make the little town infamous. Next time on Method and Madness, we'll identify the two killers and follow them as they flee from Holcomb, Kansas, and we'll dive into that night, the night of the murders, in the killer's own words. Also, Truman Capote comes to Holcomb, Kansas, with his friend, Harper Lee. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support it is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is research written and hosted by me. It is edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.